welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. Hey, today's episode is a two-parter. The first part of the episode, I'm going to do a breakdown on one of the more recent news that happened in the music industry. Motown Records CEO and chairwoman Ethiopia Haptamarian has stepped down and there is a lot to unpack there. So we're going to talk about that. And in the second half of this episode, we're joined by my guy, Zach O'Malley Greenberg, and we are going to talk about the recent list that he put out, which is hip hop's 2022 list for the wealthiest artists. He has some new announcements, some usual names, and we break it all down. But first, let's start with the news at Motown. So it was last week, shortly after Thanksgiving, Ethiopia and Universal and Motown announced that she will be stepping down from her role. This is a role that she has officially had at this level for just over a year and a half. I think it was March 2021 that the role was announced, but she's essentially been the face of Motown from a leadership perspective for over a decade now. And when the move happened, I think that there were a fair amount of people I could understand that could have been caught off guard by it. But when I start asking around, asking a few people questions who I know understand the situation pretty well, it's quick to see that what's being pushed publicly isn't quite reflecting what's actually happening behind closed doors. But before we get to all that, let's talk about some of the wins that I think Motown and Ethiopia have accomplished over the past decade, because I think these stand out and they're really important. I look at the 2015 joint venture deal that she did with Quality Control Music as one of those deals that can ultimately help bring a record label from its days of resting on its laurels to being able to get a bit more current. We've seen this happen time and time again. You look at Interscope in the early 90s. Interscope was a legacy rock and roll label. Jimmy Iovine was trying to figure out the next thing and then boom, here comes Suge Knight, here comes Dr. Dre and Death Row Records comes through. Not only does Death Row continue to rise up with the support of Interscope, but you also see Interscope adopt a bit of that cool factor and really revive itself. And now Interscope has continued to be one of the strongest record labels that we have. You also saw that a few years later happen with Republic Records and with Cash Money. Cash Money signs a deal that I've talked about plenty of times on this podcast, that 1998 distribution deal. And that deal did a lot for Baby and Slim, but it arguably did even more for Republic Records, which now I believe it's in its fourth year in a row, the leading industry or the leading record label in the industry when it comes to overall market share. And I do think that what quality control and Motown were able to do do deserve some similar praise. But the slight difference here is that Motown for a lot of this time and even more so as we continue to learn was saddled under the Capital Music Group umbrella and didn't really have the opportunity to stand alone as a true record label that could run on its own and be a standalone entity the same way that we see with Interscope, the same way that you see with Republic and some of the other record labels that are under the Universal Music Group umbrella. When the news first announced, though, there wasn't as much chatter about Ethiopia's departure. You think about the times that Def Jam has turned over CEOs. There are think pieces on think pieces. You can't get people to stop talking and sharing their opinions. Some of them unbased, but people sharing their opinions about what Def Jam did and didn't do wrong. But there wasn't as much here. You saw a little bit in uh, 
piece that Gail Mitchell at Billboard had done where I think she did a good breakdown. You could definitely read between the lines a little bit of some of the things that necessarily weren't being said. But what I think we started to unpack and what we started to get a sense for was even though Motown had increased its market share considerably under Ethiopia's tenure, I believe back in 2017, it was around 0.4%. And as of most recently, from what Billboard reported in 2022, it's at 0.95%. And that's great, more than double. And you think about how much more recorded music has grown from 2017 to 2022 now as well. That's a pretty huge growth. And there's that's nothing to shy away from. The thing is, though, Record label executives and the music industry isn't aren't just judged on market share. You're judged on how efficient you are with what you do to acquire that market share. You're also judged on your ability to score deals and your ability to do it in a way that's efficient. Everyone still has a P&L at the end of the day. But I think the slight difference for some of these companies is that because they sit under the Universal Music Group umbrella, you may not necessarily know what's really happening unless you have a really discerning eye and you can put two and two together. And if you look at some of the moves that Motown has made over the years, there have been a number of big signings, but have those big signings always necessarily led to the type of results that, you know, someone like Universal CEO Lucian Grange wants to see from a record label that now would be standing alone and no longer under the Capital Music Group umbrella? You look at an artist like Lil Baby, who, you know, through quality control is part of that Motown collective, but you needed a few more artists at that level and you need to get them at affordable rates. And I think the biggest win that we saw from Motown in recent years was they recently signed NBA Youngboy. This is about a year after you started working with his record label. But how much did it cost to get NBA Youngboy? He had just posted on Instagram. This was two months before this deal was made public. He had just posted on Instagram. This was in August 2022 that he was a $60 million dude. You're saying you're a $60 million dude. A lot of people thought that was a cash money deal. They thought that was probably what Baby and Slim offered. But you later find out that this is what was coming from Motown. And I don't know if that's the number or not, but you can just assume a few things. One, NBA Youngboy is someone that just got out of his deal at Atlantic Records, and he's getting out of his deal. This is the second most stream artist, according to Hits Daily Double for year to date for 2022. But as we also know about streams, not all streams are necessarily weighted the same, and those YouTube streams may not necessarily lead to the same payouts that you may get from the digital streaming providers, your Spotify's, your Apple Music, your titles, your Amazons and so forth. So you have that. You also mix that in with NBA Youngboy's audience isn't necessarily the type to go buy up a bunch of vinyl. They're not the type to go buy up a bunch of digital copies or then necessarily sell out an arena. And it's great that he has those streams, but he has those streams because he's dropping an album every other month. It's not the same as Columbia having a big release from Harry Styles and then monetizing the shit out of that. Or Kendrick Lamar having a big release on Interscope, and then that continues to do numbers and numbers. It's not the same type of thing in that way. So I think that even if you're able to win a bidding war, which is great, obviously a number of labels would have wanted to get NBA Youngboy. There's a certain price to everything, and 
Even though we may not know the specific details, we can put two and two together. There are also a few other recent signings that could be called a bit into question. There were signings of Diddy and Brandy, and these are names that I think a lot of people, especially millennials and Gen X folks grew up with, and they're going to be people who have done quite a bit in the music industry, but they're a different stage in their career. Their their years of earning meaningful revenue for a record label aren't necessarily where they are at this particular point in their careers. That's okay, but does the price that was paid to get them justify that? And I think there's kind of an unsaid thing where if you're signing someone who is already well off, they are likely doing this for their own choice, then it may cost a little bit more than an equivalent artist who could produce just as much from a revenue side as what you may expect from Diddy or Brandy moving forward if they don't have that name and that cachet and, to be frank, the stability to not do a deal unless it's going to be lucrative enough for them. And then you also have artists like Smino and Vince Staples who are talented at rap and they definitely had the moment where you thought things were rising up, but they don't move units like that. And then it brings you back to the broader piece of what's happening specifically with the JV, with quality control music. And I think you've seen a lot of success there. Lil Baby is one of the most successful artists that we've seen, but I think you just needed a few more artists like that. Even Migos, I think that Migos, in some ways, from a commercial standpoint, peaked with that first Culture album that came out. Culture 2 wasn't able to hit the same heights, and Culture 3 definitely wasn't either. None of the solo artists were necessarily able to do that. And unfortunately, there was some you know, conflict between the Migos themselves. Takeoff is no longer with us. There's just a lot that just didn't exactly line up. And it's really tough. And it's even tough to share it this way because I think one of the reasons you didn't hear a lot of chatter and discussion about this is because a lot of people really wanted to see Ethiopia succeed, myself included. We want to be able to see these Black executives continue to reach the highest ranks that they can because we also want to be able to see the same whether it's Tunji at Death Jam or others but the way that things are presented externally and this effort to necessarily hide things may have you thinking that these executives have more control and influence than they actually do and it isn't and they weren't necessarily given the same level of influence or control that John Janik may get at Interscope or that the Lipmans may have at Republic so we really have to be honest when we're reporting these things and what we're showing and what we're not, because it does a disservice not only to the industry about, you know, trying to hide these things, because listen, this is a place where there's plenty of people that are talented. People learn from where they can come through and it doesn't and it isn't going to hurt people the way that you think that it is. And one of the reasons that these things often can be controlled this way, the music industry's PR machine can be so strong and it can have you having this, you know misconceived perception. And while I think insiders do know, there's a lot of folks who are on the outside that will eventually rise to those ranks who just don't necessarily have a clear picture. And anytime that there's that big of a delta, that's how information just doesn't necessarily get itself to the right people at once. And we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to empower the folks, the next generation. And I know a lot of this is swimming uphill. This is an industry that is controlled by a lot of lawyers and it's an industry that really thrives on the PR of how things spin, but behind closed doors, it's a very different uh, situation. In some ways, it's almost a stark difference to something like tech, where so much of the you know drama and decisions that happen within big tech or happen you know out in the open. You can see things, and while some of that you know can be to a fault, I do think it leads in some ways to 
some better discussions around what success can look like and what opportunities can look like. So I hope we can all use this as a reminder to make sure that we're being transparent as we can when we call things out. It helps more people think and be able to have the right discussions about what success looks like. And the more that we can report on what success benchmarks actually are so that you're not just relying on a imperfect key performance indicator like market share and you're actually reporting on efficiency. It's great that someone landed a deal, but how much did it cost to get that artist signed? And will that payout turn out the way that you think that it is? And at the end of the day, this is about P&Ls. Are you bringing in enough profit to offset any of the loss? And is there future belief and potential in your ability to get the buy-in, do it in an efficient way, and keep driving the business forward? Quite the buzz after Thanksgiving. We'll see what the rest of the year brings. I think things will be pretty quiet until things head into January. But with that, let's turn things over to the next part of the episode. Here's my conversation with Zach O'Malley-Greenberg about the wealthiest hip-hop artists in 2022. All right, we have Zach O'Malley-Greenberg back with us, who recently released hip-hop's wealthiest list for 2022. Your second year doing this independently, by the way, so shout-outs to you on that. And it was great to see the results. We had some expectations, Jay-Z number one, but... There's two people I really want to dive into with this conversation. Let me just run through the list first. So you have Jay-Z, number one, one and a half billion. Diddy, two, newly minted billionaire, one billion. You have third, Yay, at $500 million. Fourth, Burner, $410 million. And then we have Dr. Dre at $400 million. So let's start at the top. What was it like for you, not just releasing this independently, but being able to put it out? And as you were putting it together, what were some of the stuff that suck out to you. Yeah, you know, first of all, this this list is is probably the thing that I put the most effort to into every year. At the end of the day, you see these numbers, you know, 1.5 billion, they get reported. And it was the same in my days at Forbes uh, as doing it independently. People take the number, run with it. And I think a lot of times people just assume it's like, ah, somebody's pulling the number out of wherever. But, you know, I, I would say I put more time into those numbers uh, then I have put into some cover stories, um, you know, that are several pages long. So it's going through each of these, you know, these superstars and figuring out, you know, what's in their portfolio, what is each asset worth, calling people, you know, who, who have knowledge, whether it's, you know, within the camps of the stars themselves or industry experts that are covering, you know, the booze business or the weed business, something like that, finding ways of valuing these assets, you know, and I think the, the, the new thing for me, uh, aside from doing it independently, was um, I've been taking courses at Columbia Business School this year. I'm part of a, a fellowship where I sort of do first year of business school light and, um, and get to bounce around it and learn some of these concepts that you know maybe uh, I didn't know before. I get to sharpen them and it's given me some new tools for looking at things like Diddy Ciroc partnership and you know ways to value things that are a little bit weird and, and not, not sort of like a run of the mill asset. So yeah, you know, I mean, I think the big takeaway, the big surprise is probably Burner being on the list and being ahead of Dr. Dre. Like you said, I think Diddy being a billionaire finally, you know, Diddy would say that's not news. You know, he would say that he should be higher. I'm sure it's been really cool to to take a look at it, you know, independently and with some of these new tools in my in my toolkit to to come up with. Uh, I would say my most accurate yeah, list. Well, ever, yeah, that's good to hear. And I want to talk about Diddy first because I feel like. That's the one, I'll be honest. The news there surprised me a bit, not because I didn't think that Diddy was a billionaire, but more so because of how his business is and how things are structured. And it made me wonder, okay, how much has changed? Because 
I knew that Ciroc was the main thing that he had that was the one of the largest drivers of his net worth. But you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that the sales had peaked around the mid-2010s and maybe there was a slight decline, but maybe um, you might have more intel on that. And I know that Revolt and I know w- w- that business there and with Sean Sean itself, I know he had sold it and bought it back. So I was a bit curious to see or maybe hear how much of his net worth changed as a result of something that had appreciated in value versus your calculations of how you'd be doing this now as opposed to maybe how you had done it years back. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think my methodology changed slightly. Breakdown isn't that much different. Ciroc is still the the main component. You know, you could say safely, it's the slight majority of his 1 billion net worth. And it's a, it's a weird arrangement because he, he does not hold an equity stake. However, the deal is structured to emulate an equity stake because it wouldn't have worked as an equity stake because Ciroc is owned by Diageo. It's this giant public traded company. They couldn't really be like, hey, here's, you know, a quarter of our company or something like that. It, it's, you know, it, it, there wasn't really a way to, to, to do that. So it was, it was more creating a framework around the Ciroc brand to function like a equity stake. So if Diageo were ever to sell Ciroc, Diddy would get, you know, let's say the proceeds after you back out the amount of money that Ciroc has put into the partnership. So, you know, something like third, it, it would be a lot. And, and the, there's no doubt that Ciroc, you know, even if things have sort of flattened out a little bit, it's a it's a multi-billion dollar brand. You know, I mean if, if you look at something like Kettle One, you know, brands like that that have changed hands, you know, they, they, these are billion dollar brands. And, you know, Ciroc is I think number two behind Grey Goose. So it's it, it's up there. They're not going to sell it. But if they did, you know, we're looking at a pretty big payday. So the question is, how do you value something that isn't going to get sold? And and really, you know, if you want to really nerd out about it from um sort of MBA type perspective, you know, thinking about valuing cash flows. That's, you know, one of the fundamentals of valuation in corporate finance and stuff like that. And and, you know, there there are formulas and without getting into like the, you know, sort of like more details of it, where you can sort of enter assumptions into the formula and, and you can get a uh, a number. And so I but basically what I did was I took the way I was doing it before, I ran the numbers that way. And then I and then I kind of did some pre-cash flow analysis and and kind of like average things out and uh, I, any way you slice it, the Ciroc partnership is, you know, is, is worth a little more than half of his uh, billion dollar valuation. The other things that, you know, I think perhaps I had been, you know, undercounted a little bit in the past or have appreciated uh, a lot since then, you know, Revolt is still h- hanging around there. And, and that's another thing where the valuation could depend, you, you, you value it as, you know, sort of a, like a TV based entity, even though it's more digital, do you, do you value it as a, a news outlet? Do you value it as a tech startup? Uh, there are a bunch of different ways to look at it, but in any case, you know, he, he is the majority owner there. Another thing that I think people sleep on is Delion Tequila. That is a, you know, that is really growing and he owns half of that. Actually, it's a 50, 50 joint venture with Diageo and they're moving a hundred and something thousand cases a year now. Uh, actually, you know, booze has done really well during the pandemic. You might imagine people, I don't know, I, mean, I feel like we're back to, you know, some of our, our, our old ways of going out and doing things, but, you know, people are drinking at home during the pandemic. So, you know, Ciroc and, uh, Delian didn't get hurt in the way that, um, let's say the live touring business did. So Diddy was pretty well insulated there. And then you go through and he's got 
like a pretty immense art collection. He's got some real estate that's appreciated pretty rapidly over the past few years, you know, some of which he owns outright. And, uh, you know, you kind of add it all up and, um, he, he's comfortably a billionaire. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you notice, like, I, I, you know, some folks when they hit that status or when they make the, you know, the, the list or something, we'll, we'll kind of like tweet about it. But, um, but yeah, I don't think I saw anything from, from Diddy because, you know, I, he's thought that he's a billionaire for, uh, you know, years already. And, you know, maybe he was, but, but now I, I definitely think that he is. And, uh, I would expect, you know, to see other, um, let's say mainstream <laughs> business outlets follow suit and, 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 you know, kind of acknowledging what's, what's. Yeah. I appreciate the breakdown true. there and thinking about just the different categories there. If thinking about Ciroc itself, as you mentioned, maybe the sales flattened out a bit, but looking at um revolt specifically and i know that business has you know gone through some evolutions as well over the past few years would it be safe to assume that the biggest valuation change here for diddy's assets that maybe brought him to a billion is daily owned and some of the artwork in terms of like what's appreciated if we assume that whether it's Ciroc or revolt have either flattened out a bit like would those be the ones you say that had put him over one billion yeah, you know, he was pretty close before last time I did it for Forbes, I think it was three years ago. I think he was at 740. You know, personally, I, you know, without getting too deep into it, I would have put him a little higher, um, but they're, you know, you get your files edited and that's part of the deal. And, you know, you, you got to create a consensus. And I think, you know, and Forbes always says it, it would rather be conservative about valuations that it would rather understate than overstate. But, you know, so, so that's part of it too. But, yeah, I, I think there's definitely been an appreciation in the value of, of Delion, the real estate, you know, the, the art, certainly. Um, there's a lot of startup stakes uh, for Diddy. Like he's, he's not doing it as, as um, let's say, publicly as uh, Nas or, or Jay-Z, but, you know, he definitely hops in as an angel in, in a, lot of, a lot of startups that, that have done well. So, but, you know, yeah, I think Delion is, is the, I mean, it doesn't get the glory of Ciroc, but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a younger company. There's more room to grow. And, um, not, not to be a shill, but it, it actually tastes really good. Uh, I've tasted other, you know, celebrity tequilas and they're, they're not good, but it, like it, it is a, it is a tasty booze. Uh, if I may say so myself. And I think the way that he, he launched it was that he found this sort of, it was a, you know, like a boutique brand that had already won some awards. And then he kind of got in with Diageo and then they boosted it up, um, to where it is now. So, uh, I really think that's probably like where you could see a lot more growth um, if he's going to start to try to challenge Jay Z for that. Why do you think spot? that De Leon hasn't gotten that same amount of love that Ciroc has gotten, at least publicly? I think a lot of attention was focused on, you know, like Casamigos or some of the other the the really big brands, and it it hadn't quite gotten to that level with the the same um, you know distribution and 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 mind share. And, you know, frankly, I mean, I think Diddy has been devoting more energy to Ciroc, but, you know, you're starting to see it, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit less of an in your face kind of vibe with the brand. It's a little, you know, it's like more of a sipping thing, less of the shots at the club kind of thing. Although I'm sure, you know, you could sip either or do shots at either at the club. Uh, but, um, I, I think it's just, you know, they're, they're, it's just not around as much. I mean, I think. The case volume on Ciroc is still like 10 times, more than 10 times as high as Dillion. So you're just not going to see it around as much. And, and that I think sense. that's why. 
And the other thing too that you mentioned is that Deleon itself is actually a joint venture with Diageo, unlike the Ciroc partnership. So of course I know that the Ciroc partnership, now we're talking 15 plus years ago at this point when things kicked off and different position, different leverage and relationships. So I'm curious, I wonder if the relationship is part of the reason why Diddy was able to have the type of ownership and partnership with Deleon that he may not have, at least in writing with Ciroc. Yeah, I think so. And I think that was part of his motivation uh, for how he structured Deleon. He, he, he wanted to have that actual equity stake, you know, like ironclad 50-50 joint venture type thing rather than an agreement that that mimics uh, a, a joint venture. So, you know, I think that the success of Ciroc definitely convinced Diageo like, all right, this is, you know, we can do this with another brand. He's the guy. And um, for my book, Three Kings, I, I talked to some folks over there and, you know, they really, uh, I think I talked to the CEO at the time and they they couldn't have been more diffusive about him. And of course, you know, like whatever, he's part of their team. Of course, they're going to say good things about him. But he, uh, you know, they were saying just like the attention to detail, like he would he would go to clubs and, and, you know, go to the bartender and be like, why is the Ciroc not on the top shelf? And the, and what are you going to do? You're going to be like, oh, sorry, Mr. Combs. I'm gonna leave it down here. You know, <laughs> and they would put it up on the top. I mean, it's that sort of like retail politics level of stuff. And, you know, I, I always say that, that Diddy, you know, in a way, like you could argue who, who's had the most special career and, you know, who's the goat of, um, you know, on the business side and, and, you know, I think a lot of people would say Jay-Z and they wouldn't be wrong, but, you know, I think Diddy in a way has done more with less because his, you know, he hasn't been musically relevant in, in, you know, a really long time in, in that way. Um, and he still puts stuff out and whatever, but it's not like the anticipation that exists when, when Jay drops an album or even a verse on, you know, on a DJ Khaled song or something. And, you know, I always like to say Diddy is kind of more like Richard Branson if he happened to just have had a, you know, like a, a, a moment as a, as like a big time rapper and, you know, and, you know, certainly as a producer, he's had a hand in a lot of things and, and he's you know, not to, not to diminish that, but he, you know, he, he, he acknowledges himself. He says, I don't write rhymes, I write checks. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's a strong suit. I think it's, I think it's especially impressive to see that he's done it without being like, particularly talented yeah i think that his through line of being able to sell a lifestyle is what sets him apart in a lot of ways he did it with his music i think in a lot of ways bad boys modeled after so much of what he learned at uptown and then you're able to transfer that lifestyle to okay this is the music that you listen to now this is what you wear while you wear sean john this is what you drink while you're listening to this right (laughs) you're gonna drink ciroc and this is the media that you're going to watch and this is the and now with the cannabis line that he just bought this is what you're going to smoke while you're enjoying this lifestyle too mm-hmm. and i think that a lot of those businesses have had varying uh, success and we can go into that but i do think that the ones that have been the most successful Ciroc, sean john and the music there's that tight connection and there's a, a key timing aspect that goes into all of it Yeah, and it doesn't even need to be his music, right, that is popular in order for the Ciroc formula to work. It's the Ciroc Boys, it's DJ Khaled, and the Summer Watermelon, or whatever it is, you know. I think his ability to make those partnerships, to find other people, 
you know, who are kind of doing now what he was doing then musically are, you know, I, I think that that's part of the, the formula and that's why it works so well. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's funny, like DJ Khaled, you know, something like Wild Thoughts was doing exactly what Diddy was doing a couple of decades ago, right? He was taking a song from a couple of decades ago, you know, one or two decades ago and putting, you know, some new voices, modern voices on it. And it was a song that was great before, and now it's got you know like more uh, kind of a current vibe to it, and and it, and it you know goes up the charts. So I think Diddy is just very savvy with that kind of stuff. Even yeah, that's a good point. Stuff. Let's talk about Sean John for a bit because I'm curious how that factored into your methodology with everything. Because as many people know, he has started the brand tw- over 20 years ago, and now. Well, in 2016, he sold the brand. Then the brand was up in auction, and then he bought it for public number I saw was $7.6 million. So now he has that back as an asset. How did that piece of it factor in for you and just the journey overall of Sean Sean? Yeah, and not much now. You know, I mean, I think what factored in more was uh, sort of like his cash pile. Like he sold it for, I think, like whatever it was five years ago, something like that. I think he got, he got like 30 million, it was 40 million, something like that, that he then put into other things. And, uh, you know, obviously without him, it doesn't do well. And so he went bankrupt. And I think it's really smart for him to buy it back. You know, who knows what he might end up doing with this, but uh, I think there's just, um, you know, it's like a tremendous market for sort of like 90s nostalgia right now. And, you know, I, I think, a Sean John or, uh, or even a rock aware, if they could have, I don't know, that's a little more complicated, but I think that, you know, it, 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 it and it, you know, it, if he's at the helm and, and, and is part of the lifestyle, it, it would never count him out. So, but yeah, as far as what it's worth right now, it's not, it's, it's sort of more of a rounding error in the overall number, but, um, just, you know, be interesting to see what it And when you made like. your list around the same time, I believe that same week, there were two other announcements that came up. One was the cannabis company that he bought for, I believe, was $185 million. And the other one, I don't know if this one was 100% confirmed, but did you see that thing floating around about him making an investment in Twitter along with Elon Musk's bid? Yeah, no, you know that that was all after the numbers got finalized. So, you know, those weren't really factored into it. But, but, you know, I mean... Yeah, it, it all it all makes sense. It's all part of the the lifestyle thing. It's all, all part of the sort of the Diddy Diddy Empire, the Diddy Mo. And uh, you know he he's look. I mean, for, on the cannabis side, right? Like he's puff daddy. You know, it's like what are what are you puffing? It's exactly it makes sense. It's like part of the brand. And you know, if, if he could do the same thing with cannabis, he did with vodka, which is to say, like I mean, I don't know. I think. I think when he started Ciroc, vodka was was not, you know, it was not really seen as a stylish thing. It was more of like you do a shot to get drunk. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's because I was in college when that happened, and that's what that's sort of the vibe around vodka. But he made he made it like the champagne of vodka. So he, he associated his lifestyle with it, and and similarly, I think with weed, it's like you know we're in this very nascent part of the of the, the cannabis economy, you know, becoming legal, and and sort of how do you start to differentiate brands, you know, and when you have legalization, you can have, you know, like the champagne of weed, right? You, you can start to differentiate, you know, like what type of buzz you're going to get because it's regulated and you can actually say like, this is the thing 
that has this much THC and it's going to give you this kind of high versus like this is just going to knock you on your ass. I think that I think it's a great place for him, for him to get into. But, you know, at the same time, it's like it is a really hard place to do business still. And, you know, it, it is not without risk. It, you know, because it is not federally legal yet, you, you have to do you have to do most of your business in cash. You can't get loans in the same way, especially if you have a plant touching enterprise. You have to do all these handle all these different state regulations, which are constantly changing and are subject to like the whims of, you know, political races and, you know, potentially gerrymandering all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with Diddy. So, you know, I think that's, that's a tricky part. And, you know, also not being a first mover in the way that somebody like Burner is, but at the same time, it's like, you know, he fills a different niche in the market potentially than, than Burner does. And uh, yeah, no, that'll be, that'll be fascinating to watch. Yeah, I think the thing about Revolt is great concept and the vision, of course, makes sense seeing how influential Diddy was with MTV and whether it's the vote or die shirts that he would wear or some of the other programming. He leveraged it so well as a hip hop artist. So if you know you have that impact, why wouldn't you want to go start your own company and go do the same, right? I think some of the timing just became a little tough in that he started the cable network in 2013. People are already starting to cut the cord at that point. And then I know the company's transitioned much more into digital media, but even that, given that so much of it is social media based, relying on other platforms and their algorithms, I think we saw so many of those companies in that same time frame, even the ones that were perceived as being successful, whether it's your BuzzFeeds or your Huffington Post or your Complex, like all of those valuations came back down to earth. And you look at a company like Revolt, which I think was largely playing the same game although I think they still make tons of great content and there are tons of great, brilliant people working there. I think that just digital media itself and where things transformed is a bit tough. Like, let's say that Diddy had started Revolt, let's say 2007, as opposed to 2013. I think we having a very different conversation. You know, or uh, 1997, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, I, I think it could be a whole different conversation and, you know, yeah, that's one of the smaller pieces of the empire. And I think like you would say, you would make a certain argument about it and, you know, valuing it more like on the lines of, of being a tech company, but it, it's hard to escape the fact that it, you know, it still is like, I, I would say, yeah, like a primarily a, a media outlet point and whether it's, you know, via cable or the internet or whatever, it's like, these are, these are not like, these are kind of tricky places to be, but, you know, it does make sense. Um, there is a demand for that kind of stuff and it's cr- crowded marketplace, but you know, he does have something different to offer. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's a reason why it's still around and, uh, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it goes, how it proceeds as, as we enter like the next phase of this, um, sort of media shakeup, uh, yeah, in, in an yeah definitely. Account. And I think the other thing too, that I should have mentioned earlier is that Given that this is a Black-owned media company, I know he's been vocal and Byron Allen and others have been vocal about advertisers not contributing the same level of money into Black-owned media companies that they would to, let's say, some of Revolt's competitors in the space that maybe started and run by white founders, white executives, but they're commanding more money from that perspective. So I think that's another tough thing there. But overall, like we said, this is a small piece of the overall pie and yeah, it'll be interesting to see, especially yeah. the newer businesses, how many of them can continue that Ciroc magic, the the, the bad boy flavor, and see see where that lifestyle keeps going. Yeah. 
All right, well, now let's talk about the other big one on the list, Burner. And based on the response that I saw from people sharing the list, people talking about it, this is the one that surprised a lot of people, but I know it didn't surprise you because you've been following this for a while. You've been talking to Burner, getting a better understanding for his business. So it'd be great to hear the breakdown because I think a lot of people out there may know Burner now more so for this product than they may actually his music or anything else that he's done in hip hop up to now. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think Burner is one of the most fascinating names on the list, definitely the most surprising. Uh, but, you know, I, I've been following his work for a while and, you know, he's a, he is a master marketer and his whole journey about how he turned Cookies Cannabis into this, you know, it's, it's a, it is a billion dollar company. And, and it's just a little tricky to value, but, uh, it is a billion dollar company and the way he did it, you know, it's, I would say it's a case study, but it's actually pretty hard to emulate. It is a sort of like a singular way of doing things. So, you know, for, for the people who don't know the background, Burner, born in California and San Francisco, grew up there, moved to Arizona as a teenager and, and would bring back good weed from California when, whenever he, you know, would make trips back to his old stomping grounds. And, and, um, that's how he kind of like got his start. He moved back to San Francisco uh, during the early, you know, weed legalization gold rush. Worked at a dispensary and you know, kind of popularized this Girl Scout cookies uh, strain of weed. And so his thing would at the dispensary, he would, you know, they used to sell things. It was just sort of like an index card with the name of the strain. It was like very clinical. But he would he would sort of like do these doodles and cookies and you know these like bright colors and stuff. And and it started to get some tension. He he became. You know, Wiz Khalifa's weed man when he was in San Francisco and, and on one occasion brought this like fully budded six foot tall weed plant onto the stage at, uh, at a Wiz Khalifa show. And, you know, I think was sort of like instrumental in, in Wiz Khalifa creating Khalifa Kush and all this stuff. And, and so Burner ultimately parlayed this sort of underground, you know, weed connoisseur image that he had as, as a, you know, both on the the uh, legal and illegal markets in, into this into this brand, cookies started opening stores, created a clothing line that you know kind of goes along with it, and um, you know, but but the thing that he did with the way he set up his company is pretty pretty unusual and, and very hard to value, but it it I think is quite brilliant. He uh, he he started striking these partnerships with dispensaries, and you know, essentially. It, it was a licensing deal where he would get a cut of, of profits off of the top, but or sorry, not not just profits. He would get a cut of revenue, and then the other part of the deal is that he could also buy out any of these partners at market rate at a time future, you know, in the future to be determined. And you know, like some of these numbers are out there, but you know, I think the system wide sales are close to half a billion dollars now, and so he doesn't actually, you know, he, he gets a cut of that. But, you know, at any time you could decide to roll all, you could raise money, roll all these partnerships up into one giant weed company that's, you know, you know making that, you know, that, that kind of revenue. And, and suddenly, you know, you, all you need to do is you put a multiple on that and, and, and that, that would tell you what the company would be worth if you rolled it all up and bought it, you know, bought everybody up. And I've talked to Wall Street analysts about this who cover the space. And they said, you know, yeah, you would put it like a 5X multiple on this. So that would mean it's a, you know, yeah, like about a $2 billion company. Then you have to factor in the cost of buying out all those partnerships. You know, long story short, would probably be about half a billion dollars because it is a very tricky business. In fact, you have to be very liquid of doing everything in cash. It's kind of complicated, but 
people I talked to, you know, bankers and stuff said, yeah, you, you would apply a private company discount due to the uncertainty of the market, things like that, that is operating it. You know, you would knock 20, 30% off of that. And, you know, so that it, it brings it down to around a billion dollars and then Burner still owns about a third of it. And so that's, you know, th- there's the bulk of his uh, fortune right there. You know, so his stake is probably worth around $300 million at this point, I figure. And I think that's pretty conservative. Then you, you know, you, you add in some other things invested in the clothing line, which he owns, uh, you know, a huge part of still, you know, some homes, cash, stuff like that. And, and you get to that uh, $400 nice. million number. Yeah, I've been seeing people wearing the cookies hoodies walking around San Francisco, walking around other places. So, but definitely seeing the the apparel thing push. And I feel like he has one of those brands where I'll probably see even more of that stuff. I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I was driving by and I saw the the store on on Hate, uh, in, in Hate Ashbury neighborhood here in San Francisco. So, yeah, no, definitely, definitely making moves. Um, a few things there that stuck out. So he, of course, has his own standalone stores. As you mentioned, there's 55 of them across the country right now. And he also was selling them to other dispensaries. And I'm sure if and when weed does become legalized across the country, that will then just make things even easier from a distribution perspective from other places that he may be able to sell than he otherwise. So in some ways, the investment isn't just based on what's currently there, or there's also a speculative nature on as this underlying product becomes more and more legal, there will be more opportunity to further sell this and further have its reach to different places. Absolutely. And the clothing line also builds the value of the the cannabis brand. And, you know, if and when it is federally legalized, you got to think, I mean, you know, this is one of the top brands in the business. And in fact, you know, there aren't really brands in this way in the cannabis space. There's strains. There's like, you know, people have like, you know, it's almost saying like in beer, you know, like, yeah, people like IPAs or people like Pilsners or whatever, but there's, you know, there isn't really like a Budweiser yet or a, or a dogfish head, you know, or something like that. And, you know, there, there isn't uh, to go back to Diddy, there's no, not like really a champagne of weed. So you know, I, I think that Burner has built up all this credibility in the space. And, you know, if it, when it goes legal, it's like to be one of the top weed brands in this space that is going to, you know, potentially rival where, you know, at least kind of start to eat into alcohol business. I mean, you know, 2 billion is not a, a large number for a, for a company. There's, there's just like a lot of potential for it to, to, um, to get a lot bigger. And, you know, we can get into the whole, there's definitely a lot of, arguments pro and con is the, the benefits of THC and cannabis in general. And, you know, we could be here all day on that, but um, just from a business perspective, you know, I, it seems like we're headed toward legalization. Burner actually thinks that, that Republicans are more likely to make federal um, legalization happen. He said, cause they're all about their paper. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know who he's, I, I'm not saying he's, who he's voting for anything. I don't know, but you know, uh, it, it was interesting perspective and uh, you know, like uh I, I think that he, he he's really got got a kind of a key to where it's. One of the other things that sticks out to me about him is that he's someone who is much more known, at least on a general awareness perspective, for the business that he's built as opposed to the music. I feel like his music was a bit more of a, a regional thing, and he puts out a ton of music, but it never hit the same levels as some of the other artists who are having nine figure net worths as well. And I feel like there's often this thought and which I do believe generally is true that 
the artists who tend to be the most successful with product sales and investing and some of the more lucrative business opportunities that artists have done, they're more likely to be the household names who have been releasing music and touring for decades. And a lot of times it's because they're releasing products that are lending their names. So they're leveraging their influence to now sell things that have a larger stake in and can be bought time and time again. He's a little different though, because he doesn't necessarily have that. And I'm curious what you think about that piece of it, because I think so many of the hip hop cash lists over the years do have at least somewhat of a correlation as to who are the more well-known artists or who are the more popular artists at the time and not necessarily who is building the strongest business, you know, that is being worth the most. And that is not correlated with how, how much mainstream popularity that artists may have. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the, I mean, the funny thing is when, when you look at it, he is the most prolific artist on the list, but you know, he, he is like, has the least name recognition as well. Right. I mean, Jay-Z, Diddy, Kanye, uh, Dr. Dre, are none of them are, are putting out music at the pace with which Burner is putting out music. But they're, everybody knows who they are, and not everybody knows Burner. You know, it, I, I think it's so like, you, you could almost argue like, well, are you really going to yeah. put him on the, you know, on the list with these guys who, who have that much more name recognition? But you could also argue, should we really be treating, you know, Diddy as a rapper any more than we should be, tr- you know, treating... Richard Branson is right. I know Richard Branson didn't actually rap ever, but you know, effectively, Diddy is just focused on business at this point. Yeah. And you know, he puts out songs here and there. It, music is ancillary. Burner also uses, you know, the music to boost the weed business, but he's in the studio like all the time, more than any of these guys. So yeah, it's just kind of yeah. kind of a funny I think another comment. person that is somewhat on a similar type of thought process, not thought process, but have maybe thought of a similar way, someone like Chameleonaire who had one really large hit, mm-hmm. but wasn't necessarily known for having classic after classic after classic album or touring the world in the same large ways as some of the other big names we did. But his investing journey is something that has been pretty well documented. And I think as a result, he's definitely further than a lot of the other artists that came up around the same time as him that may have had even more commercial success. So I feel like even though there is a lot of a correlation between who are the most well-known artists and who are the wealthiest artists, he is someone else who is a bit similar in that burner way of, hey, yeah, there may have been a smaller overall impact from the music itself, but was able to wisely use that and then now leverage that into something where, you know, the artist is making more money from the business moves and more known for that now. Absolutely. I mean, great example with Camellia and, uh, you know, the work that he's been doing in, in the startup world. So at the same time, it's like, if he hadn't had that one big hit, you know, would he, would he have been able to get into, into, you know, the Silicon Valley kind of sphere in the same way? You know, I, I don't know, but I think all it takes is, is one hit to be in the mix and, and certainly like Burner never had that one hit, right? He just had a lot of, you know, really solid albums and stuff, but he was doing it in San Francisco. And I think, you know, in that way that you see somebody like Draymond Green getting really involved in the startup world, would he have been that guy if he were in, you know, like Cleveland or something? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. But if you're in the mix, uh, in, in, in the Bay Area, you're just going to have access to a lot more opportunities, you know, in, in the startup world. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, startup world, cannabis world, you know, it's like kind of uh, kind of the epicenter there. So 
in, in a funny way that they, the two have a lot of commonalities i think right yeah um this is good i'm excited to see what next year's list looks like as well and i know you may not be able to share publicly but in order to get the five you probably evaluated a few others are there any names creeping up or rising up that you think may make a, a 2023 appearance yeah i think you know drake is creep, creeping up big new deal you know he, he doesn't have quite the same level of you know, sort of like outside assets, like he doesn't have uh, like a Ciroc or a cookies or, or what have you. And, you know, I think he, he does have this whiskey, Virginia Black, but it, it doesn't, it like never, like it's, it's still around, but it, it never really took off and it only tastes okay. It's okay. But I, I don't think taste ultimately matters a lot of times with this stuff, but uh, I'm kind of surprised that he wasn't able to like boost a little bit more, but maybe it's that, you know, I don't know. I don't, when I think Drake, I don't. I don't really think whiskey. Maybe that's just part of it. I mean, I could see him more champagne. Maybe champagne. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm interested to see for him yeah. how this new deal he has and the music that he makes as a result ends up factoring in. Because of course we know that music itself may not be the largest revenue stream for a lot of these artists, but. Drake has this huge deal with Universal and Republic now, and he's releasing music more frequently than ever. And we can assume that it's likely because he's getting better upside and margins for the music he's releasing. So if he keeps up at this like two, three albums a year clip, I mean, the numbers are going to speak for itself. Last year, he streamed more than all pre-1980 artists. Like, it's going to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing with net worth list as opposed to earnings, is that, um, you know, it, it, it's just harder to get on these lists if you are a big cash earner. Like if you are earning a lot on an annual basis, you know, things get factored into that, like taxes and cost of living and all that. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're getting these huge outlays, but, you know, it, it's not in the same way that it was like going into this, this growing asset that can be valued independently. And in a way, that's kind of like a quirk of the system because, you know, I'm valuing burners, steak, and cookies, you know, like as a, it's not tax, right? Like if he, if you were to sell it and you were to get $300 million, you know, whatever, a third, half of that would be gone to the government. But that's not baked into the formula until he sells it. So it's just the, 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 and this is, you know, this is how Bloomberg and Forbes do it. It's, it's like, it's just, it kind of is what it is, but um, it, it means that if, if you were holding assets, you know, the, the taxes aren't taken out. Whereas if you're a cash earner, um, that gets deducted before it gets added to your your, your cash pile. So uh, it just, you know, it just means Drake is more likely to be at the top of, you know, let's say top earning artist list. And, um, and, you know, it's a little harder for him to get to the top of the That's a good distinction. List. No, we'll definitely keep that in mind for next year. Do you think you'll do another top earners of the yeah. year list as well? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, we'll see how it goes. You know, being a new dad uh, and, and doing this full-time program, you know, this fellowship at Columbia that I mentioned, it, it takes a lot, a lot, a lot out, uh, you know, a lot of time. And, and you know, I, I don't want to put out a list unless I have the time to really dig in and get the numbers right. So, but yeah, you never know. I, I, I got this one out. So uh could be more, yeah, more to come. No. Yeah. And I think on that note, just talking about, dad life in general let's let's close things out there so by the time this comes out uh your daughter will be six months old and we can both share one funny thing that our kids did this past past couple weeks so i'll let you start 
Oh man. Well, I, I think the thing that's really the most exciting is that she's, uh, she's laughing now. And the thing that she mainly thinks is funny is when I'm laughing. So, you know, like we'll get into this thing where I will make myself start laughing and, and then, you know, and then she'll go, <laughs> I just, I go <laughs> and, and it's very dorky dad life, but that is like one of my favorite things to do is have like sort of a laugh off with Riley. So yeah, I, uh, I just, I don't know, man, I pick her up from a daycare every day and, uh, and she just gives me this like huge smile and, and, you know, I know that she's still really young, but I, I can tell that she's specifically recognizing me, you know, and that we have this bond already that there's, there's like a specific connection. Uh, I just had no idea that babies could sort of like differentiate people and, and start to have u- unique relationships in that way. And man, it's, it's like the best part of my day every day. So. That's awesome. Yeah, That's yeah, awesome. How about you? Yeah, I feel like there's something about that. Like for yeah. the first couple of months, I remember I would like ask my wife, I'd be like, you think she recognizes us? Like, do you think she like understands like who, who we are? And I think over time it was like, yeah, no, we can get that in. Even things like now, the mirror is something that she is obsessed with. I'm sure you probably feel the same with, with Riley too. But yeah, the mirror, at first it was kind of looking at the mirror where there's like, okay, what is this screen? Who is that person that I'm seeing? But I think now it's like looking mm-hmm. at us through the mirror and like seeing that it's us. And maybe she's starting to be like, oh, well, if I see them through this, like she probably still isn't at the point where it's like, oh, I can see that's looking at me. But she'll look at that other person staring at her in the mirror and start smiling and stuff too. So like, oh, that's cute. So. Yeah, man. Wild. Yeah. Time's flying by. Um, she'll be five months by yeah. the time this comes oh, out. But yeah, yeah. wild, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do a lot of like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah. is that? Little, little peekaboo <laughs> style games. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the mirror. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Man. Exactly. So. Well, well, we'll have to have uh, we'll have to have our kids together sometime soon. Um, I guess, you know, but of course, Fabi's not so interactive with each other. Yeah, yet, no, we'll but, get there. We'll, we'll, we'll get that happen. We'll get That'll there. be fun. That'll be fun. But Zach, no, this is great, man. Yeah. Good work as always. It was great to see the list. And again, the fact that I think you got just as much coverage and buzz and recognition for this, doing it independently is uh, a great sign, not just for you, but I think in general for people that are always questioning, okay, you know, what's the power of what I do elsewhere versus individually. So great job on that. And we'll definitely keep tabs on this uh, coming years, but great work, man, as always. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. Same to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.